Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Last year, Pastor Ramakant spoke to us about the Feast of Weeks. I wasn't here, but his sermon was a provocative message on the meaning of these seven weeks, the 50 days, and that they really do bridge the gap between unleavened bread and Pentecost. Additionally, you'll recall that he pointed to Peter's exhortation that Jessica read from Second Peter as foundational to these Feast of Weeks. The Bible is full of lists, full of lists. Let's flip through quickly. We won't be reading them, but I just want to draw your attention to some of these lists. Matthew chapter 5, let's go there first. And we see here in Matthew chapter 5, this list of Beatitudes. We won't take time to read them. You can do that on your own time. We see this list here in Matthew chapter 5 of these Beatitudes. Blessed blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc. Going forward to Galatians chapter 5, we of course see, and it's important that we have a look. I'd ask you to, to follow with me through here and have a look at these lists. In this case, I'd like for you to do that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and verse 22, we see the works of the flesh starting in verse 19. We see the fruit of the Spirit listed starting in verse 22. Philippians chapter 4, and again, the purpose is not to go through these lists, but I want to draw your attention to them. Philippians chapter 4 has another list. This is Paul's meditate on these things list found in chapter 4 and verse 8. Subsequently, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. I just put these in chronological, or, uh, numerical order here, biblical order, uh, just for ease here. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, is the put on these things, admonitions to the church in Colossae. And then of course, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I apologize for making you flip through this, but I, I want to point out something. 1 Timothy chapter 3 has the qualifications of overseers, and deacons, and that is subsequently found also in the book of Titus. Now let's go to Second Peter chapter one, where we need to go to that Jessica has already read for us. Second Peter chapter one to see this particular list. And let's read it again. Second Peter chapter one and in verse five. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Peter's list is the only one that I can find that specifies order. It's not just a rendition of, of characteristics, but he feels the need to say, start with faith, and to faith, add virtue. And to virtue, add knowledge. And to knowledge, add self-control. And to self-control, add perseverance. And to perseverance, add godliness. And to godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, add agape. We know Peter to be a practical man. Paul was quite an intellectual. He saw things on a level, as, as we heard a little bit in the 
uh, youth study today, he saw things on a level most didn't. And in reading some of his, his writings, we can see his intellectuality his, uh, coming out. He explained much of the theology we have as Christians in a way that takes time and study to understand properly. Even Peter himself said so. Peter himself said as much. But Peter was a practical man. He was a doer. He was a man of industry. We heard Deacon Jan last year, or earlier this year, recently review Peter's maturity as a leader and a man of God. He compared events in his life in the Gospels and how Christ corrected him and taught him to the mature pillar of the church that we see in his two epistles. But why list these characteristics in this specific order? And does it really make a difference? So today, what I would like to do is analyze Peter's recipe for divine character and remind us of its connection to the Feast of Weeks. And specifically, we will look at why his list is in this specific order with recipe-like instructions. Does the order matter? And what can we learn from this placement that will enhance our Feast of Weeks experience? So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we start. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last month, in our preparation for the Passover, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we noted in the sermon we, we discussed with the old leaven and the leaven of malice of wicked and wickedness. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. and verse 6, taking us back to our Passover discussions, that your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And when we looked at the old leaven, recall that we discussed that these are the old habits that we work through to try to eradicate from our lives. As we go through the, go through the Christian process of sanctification, this lifelong process of becoming made holy from the point of baptism, from the point of calling to the point of baptism, through the sanctification process. And we read about Paul in Romans 7. We don't need to turn there, but Paul's, uh, the way he so succinctly tells us about his struggles with the old man, wanting to do what is right, but still dropping the ball and stumbling, and knowing what is right and still not being able to do it all the time, that his mind was in the right place, that he took personal responsibility for these actions, and that Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, can deliver us eventually through this process of sanctification from these old habits, this old leaven. Back to Second Peter. So as we proceed from where we were a little over a month ago, the Passover time, as we proceed through these seven weeks to get to the next holy day, which is the Feast of Pentecost, Let's look again. Let's pick up the, the account here in Second Peter and see its connection to this holy season we call the Feast of Weeks. Verse 2, Second Peter chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and, our, and Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he has called us out of this world. He has, has uh, baptized, he has given us his Holy Spirit when we committed our lives to him so that we could eventually partake of, become uh, partakers of this divine nature. So he says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, and then he proceeds to go through that recipe that we've already read twice today. For this very reason, through giving all diligence, so it's, it's tough work, it's tough sledding, it's a lifelong process, to your faith add virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, so not just if you have a little bit here and there, but when you get to the point where you are full of these things, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. So now we're seeing this tie-in from into the, the being first fruits and being the, the, the Feast of Pentecost. In the knowledge, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The time period between commemorating the Passover to commemorating the first fruits of Pentecost is 50 plus or minus a few days. 50 days plus the, the time frame between Passover and the time of the way sheaf offering. And here, Paul, Peter is reminding us that this picture's life, and it's easy to forget that we've been cleansed of our old sins, that we need to be upon putting on the character of God. Therefore, he continues in verse 10, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given us the recipe for success. He has given us the recipe for divine nature. He himself calls it, we will be partakers of this divine nature. And we see that now there's this clear connection that Peter has between old sin and fruit. The old sins that we get rid of at the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and becoming fruitful and being ready to be a, a first fruit of God. Romans chapter 8, let's go there. Romans chapter 8, as we continue to set up the start of this message. Romans chapter 8. And this has been covered several times in several different ways over the last year or more that we've been here. And even before we were here, you've heard it covered several times. It was even referenced last Sabbath in the youth study that sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process. And we see it covered here by Paul. We see it covered many different ways by Paul in the book of Romans. But verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And these steps represent the sanctification process that we are now in from the point of calling through the point of baptism through this keeping of, of, 
our lives through the process of the Sabbath and the Holy Days on an annual basis to the point where we then leave this life and are ready for our resurrection as first fruits in the kingdom of God. But Peter's rendering of these steps in a specific order speaks to this fact that sanctification is a process. You put on character in bits. As you become better, you proceed through the sanctification process. Selection, purification, becoming fruitful, becoming a first fruit, this lifelong process. And this is the entire encapsulation of the spring holy day season and represents this feast of weeks mentality that we have. We're simply not waiting for Pentecost. This is not, we don't count days just to wait till Pentecost gets here. This feast of weeks is something that we should be, par- be preparing for the feast of Pentecost. We, we come from the feast of leavened bread. We wait. Christ, and we'll see a couple of these scriptures where it wasn't just the, the disciples and the uh, they come to, as Christ presented himself after his resurrection, they wanted to get out there and they wanted to get busy. And he, has, he said, you have to wait. There's things you need to prepare for first before you get out there. We should be preparing ourselves with God's help to be a first fruit. And this is the essence of Peter's message, as we read in that second epistle. But I will not spend any more time here discussing the overall Feast of Weeks, because Pastor Ramakan presented that in detail last year. But let's go through this order of this recipe and see what impact and what what meaning Peter had behind presenting these things in this way. He didn't just simply list. He did them in a specific order. And when we go to, you can keep a, a, a ribbon or a marker in Second Peter. He says, it starts with faith. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So it starts with faith. Why does it start with faith? If we go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. It starts with faith. When we, when I had the opportunity last month to present the Bible study, the public Bible study, I started out by saying that in this particular case, we need to have a foundational belief that the Bible is God's word. We can't go any further in becoming children of God if we don't have a simple belief that he is God, that his word is true, that his son exists, that he's building a family. These basic beliefs, long before we get into learning doctrine or learning, or, or learning any of these other characteristics, if we don't have a true, solid belief that God exists, his plan is real, and that there is, something, there is a reason to do all this, there's no, there's no reason to continue any further. In the hymn we just sang, the third hymn we sang, He Lives, the chorus says, how, you ask me how I know. And the, the chorus continues that He lives within my heart. You ask me how I know, faith just says, I just know. There's, I, can't, I can't prove it to you. I don't, there's nothing I can say to you. Faith is something that is within. Now, how you became faithful and how I became faithful, might, God works in various ways on how we become faithful. But I can't explain how I, I have faith. I just know that within me, I know. I know God is real. He has proven himself to me through various, various incidents in my life, various readings of scripture and various other points. You ask me how I know, I just know. I just know that God exists. I ask you how you know. If you can't say, I know, I just know, 
then just close the book and let's go have coffee. Because at this point, this is where it's foundational. Faith is where it starts. And I've, to the help of uh, Lisa, she did all this up for me, which I appreciate very much. Faith, you see the Greek word there. I have it there as, as uh, for you to take notes or to, to uh, whatever you, to, to see it up there as, a, as, as we go through. The word in Greek is pistis, and it means the conviction that God exists and the conviction of truth. It is simple belief. And when we see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, tells us, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Again, can't prove it, I just know. And I know that God is real, that Christ is real, that his way is real. And we see, as you go through chapter 11, by faith, by faith, Abel did this. Why? He just knew. He just knew this was the right thing to do, and this was what God required of him. By faith, Noah, having been divinely warned of these things, verse 7, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham left Ur and followed God's instructions. By faith, he took the knife and was going to kill his son. By faith, Moses went and left Midian and went back to battle the Egyptians and free the people. By faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, Joshua took the Israelites around Jericho seven times and the walls fell. Verse 32 sort of encapsulates this, this feeling of faith where Paul says, and what more shall I say? What, what more do we need to know? There's so much evidence of faith. What more can we say? What more do we need to say? John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Let's look at why faith is the foundation of Peter's list. This is the... When Christ presents himself to various folks after his resurrection. And we read this account in John chapter 20. And we don't have time to read through the story verbatim. We're just going to cut in and in context, cut into the context and pick this apart a little bit. Verse 15, halfway through verse 15. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus simply said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said, Rabboni. Nobody had ever been resurrected. There had been, apart from I know we, Elijah resurrected the young boy, and there's certain instances in Scripture. But this was special. Christ had been saying this was going to happen. No one believed him. She simply, he simply said, Mary, and she knew. And she said, my Lord. There was no question in her mind. You ask her how she knew, she just knew. She knew that he had risen. Then you drop down to verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day, the first of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and side. So he offered this up without being asked. He didn't offer this up to Mary. He offered this up to the disciples. And the disciples were so glad when they saw the Lord. When they, 
whether it was his voice, whether it was his inflection, whether it was actually seeing his, the, his hands inside, they also knew. And they were so glad to see their Lord. We've, we've had this story all of our lives. We've had this story for 2,000 years. These are people who had never experienced resurrection before. This was a brand new, brand new teaching. Christ had told them this, but these are people who were experiencing this phenomenon for a, a very first time, and they just knew. They knew he was Lord. Then we drop down to verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And when Thomas answered, he said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas needed a hand. Thomas, as we see earlier in verse 25, said, Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into, this, into the nails and put my hand into his side, I can't believe this. This is, this is too much for me. Thomas needed some help with the faith. But he couldn't go any further until Christ built this faith because faith is the foundation. Without faith, there's nothing to build on. So Christ took the time as much as it would have been great for him to have been like Mary or like the others where they believed instantly. He needed a bit of coaxing. He needed a bit of work. Sometimes, sometimes we have been the same. And Christ said to him in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you seen Christ's side? Have you seen his hands? Yet you believe. You're here. You're here week after week. You're keeping the holy days. You're keeping the Sabbath. You're building character. Why? You just know. You have Whatever it is that you have gone through, you just know that he exists. And it is that, 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 that this recipe of divine nature can begin to be built when we start with faith. To faith, we add virtue. To faith, add virtue. Virtue, from the Greek, Strong's 703, aret, meaning moral goodness, modesty, and purity. Faith is the starting point. Our journey goes no further until we have complete and total belief in God, in the Word, and in His written Word. Without belief in God, Christ, and these Scriptures, we go no further. But when we have that as a foundation, when we can build on that faith, Peter then says to add to that virtue. Why? Because we need to be cleaned up. We need to be prepared for character. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we become ready for this Feast of Pentecost, Acts, the beginning part of Acts will be something that I'm sure we study. And we see Peter's, we go through Peter's sermon. And we get to verse 37. When he had finished, when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? So they have some faith built. They called them brethren. We're listening here. What do we do? Those who were listening, those where the faith was being built, said, okay, what next? What's the next step? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. The next step in Peter's recipe is purity, is virtue, is to be clean. Spring is here. Who, who here has a garden? Who here gardens? You don't just... You garden, Daniel? Good, good. Who here has a garden? If you have a garden, before you can use them, you need to make them ready. You don't just go to your garden and start tossing seed where winter was without first removing the weeds, digging it up, preparing the ground, getting it ready, because seed won't take. The garden will not grow properly. You clean it up first. Before you can add anything good to it, you take out the bad. And you clean it up, and you, you get the, the tiller out or the hoe, and you get it all nice and ready, and you take out all the weeds. You take away, maybe you covered it with leaves to protect the ground from the winter. You get rid of all that. And then, once it's nice and clean, you know when it's ready. Now I can plant the garden. If you have a pool, and you open your pool up, you don't just go swimming after the winter. You have to clean it out. You have to, um, nowadays I guess they leave some of the water in and they just throw enough chemicals in that eventually it circulates enough that you don't have to empty all the pool. But back when I was a teenager and a lifeguard, the pools were emptied, cleaned right out. And then before we could open a pool, we had to give it a whole coat of acid, repaint the inside of the pools, uh, coat it with that muriatic acid, clean it all up, get it all ready, and then fill it with water. And, and, and some of the chlorine and prepare it for, for, for swimming. You don't just do something good on top of something bad. You can't paint a, a wall without priming it and getting it ready. It's just not the way things... It doesn't work right. It'll work. It'll be okay. But it's not right. And it's not the right way to do it. Psalms 51. Psalms 51. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. But we know this area of his life when he sinned with Bathsheba and all the subsequent sins. And when it was time to fix it, he started with cleanliness. Verse 1, Psalm, Psalm, the 51st Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I cannot go any further by having this sin within myself. You need to clean me up and make me right, make me pure so that I can continue on. Verse 7 continues, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
So he wanted to hear joy. He wanted to hear gladness. He wanted God's spirit to be renewed within him. But he couldn't while he had this sin. He needed to be cleaned up. There's where virtue comes in. There's where modesty and purity come in. Why faith first? Without faith, virtue makes no sense. Clean up from what? If you don't believe that God is right, if you don't believe that his word exists, that Christ exists, if you don't believe in this plan, if you don't believe there's a reason to do this, that we have a kingdom waiting for us, why be virtuous? Why clean yourself up? So, with all diligence, to your faith, if we don't have faith, he didn't say add faith, faith is the beginning. Without faith, we, the conversation ends. But once you have faith, add to that next virtue. Be clean, so you can be ready for what lies next. And to your virtue, add knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge being gnosis, 1101, and it means intelligence, understanding, and moral wisdom. Where am I going, and how do I get there? What are my resources to get this information? Proverbs 29 tells us, Proverbs 29 and verse 18, that without vision, the people perish, or the people cast off restraint. We need to know where we're going, and we need to know how we're going to get there. So once we have faith that we want to get somewhere, that wherever it is God wants us to go, we want to be, and once that is solidified and we add virtue, we become clean, much like at the represented by the Passover season where we become all cleaned up. We go through the days on leavened bread and be, have all the old leaven removed. Then we are ready for next step, which is knowledge. We go to Proverbs chapter 1. Knowledge is key. Knowledge is the next step. Verse 7 of the first chapter of Proverbs say, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The knowledge that God exists, that his word is true, that there is a kingdom waiting for us, that when we repent we are forgiven, that there are laws to follow, that his laws still exist. Back in the old days of our younger days of the, the worldwide church of God, there was that ambassador auditorium and ambassador college where kids went to, to learn of the Bible. And there was a stone that was engraved that the word of God is the foundation of knowledge. God's word is where all knowledge begins. It begins and ends with God's word. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 talks about knowledge. And how important it is, how important knowledge is in the process of becoming godly people. People with godly character, people with divine nature, people with the mind of Christ. Verse 6 tells us, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. 
when we forget what true knowledge is, when we ignore true knowledge, we end up destroying ourselves. We end up destroying ourselves. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So knowledge is key. Knowledge is important to the process. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as Christ begins his ministry with what we've come to know as the Spirit on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. So despite all this new understanding or these tweaks in, in, in knowledge that I'm giving you with the Beatitudes and the salt of the earth and the, the light of the world and my, my increased expectations, don't think we're tossing the knowledge out. We're tossing the law out. We're tossing the, the Hebrew Scriptures out. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And one way we've never looked at that is the, the word exceeds. For us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, we actually have to get there first. So knowledge is important. The exceeds part means we can't stop there. It can't be all about knowledge. It can't be all about following God's laws to the T without adding these other things. So this is why knowledge is important as one of the foundational points, the second step in this process to add to your faith. But it's not the end point because we must go beyond knowledge. But if we're to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we've got to actually get there first. And then go beyond. We can't, be, we can't be satisfied with that. We have to learn how to obey God's law. But then we understand where Christ really wants to take us. And that is so much further. Why virtue first? Because knowledge can puff up. If you simply add knowledge to someone who is impure, we become puffed up. We become self-sufficient and self-reliant. But if we add virtue to faith first and then add knowledge, we add knowledge to one who is clean, to one who is pure, to one with right motives, then the knowledge won't puff up. The knowledge will be used for good. So to your faith, add virtue. Become clean. Then add knowledge because you need to know where you're going. I he appreciates that we have faith in him and want to follow him. He needs to tell us where to go and how to get there. To your faith. Am I depressing stuff here? No, I didn't. You act a second, Peter, here. I just uh, lost, my, lost my way just a little bit here.
to knowledge, self-control. Matthew chapter 26. This word self-control is the Greek word egratia. It means the virtue of one who masters his desires and his passions. So to knowledge, we add self-control. Matthew chapter 26. When we develop this faith, we get all nice and cleaned up. We are given the knowledge of God as we become new in the faith and proceed through this this sanctification process. We seem to get very eager and, and be able to convert the world and tell anybody who's there with us. And we, we, we will then know everything. Self-control tells us, let's just slow this down a little bit. Let's take this, let's take it easy here. Slow this down a little bit. Let's look at Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking... Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus, John later in John 18 tells us it was Peter, Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we know they were prepared for a fight. They thought this was their physical Messiah who was going to bring the kingdom of Israel back. And Jesus said to him in verse 52, Put your sword in its place. Settle down and put your sword down. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Put your sword down and relax. Get some self-control. I know you think you know everything. You're going to be one of the pillars of this church here, Peter. Slow it down just a little bit. You have a lot more to learn. I could call 12 legions of angels and be out of this in a second. Just relax a little bit. This word, egratia, meaning temperance or self-control. The root word, K-R-A-T, the root word there is kratos, which actually means power. The word kratos, kratos, means power. So how can self-control come from a word that actually means power? It actually means power within. When we are self-controlled, when we have control and we are tempered, we actually have the power. The power of the Holy Spirit within us helps us to maintain control. We have all the power we need. That's why Christ said, I could, I could be out of this in a flash. So put your swords down and let's learn some temperance. So self-control is actually power. It's just the power to do the right thing. The power to control oneself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it for, to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, self-control, temperance, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So races, physical races, whether it be the Olympic Games, the World Championships, the Stanley Cup playoffs, there's one winner. But the race that we're in, there's an opportunity for us all to win. And winning is crossing the finish line. There's not the first guy across gets the only crown. There are crowns waiting for all of us. How will you run your race to the kingdom of God? Will we recklessly try to get there first, regardless of who we step on, so we can make it across the finish line first? Do we want one of the good seats? Does it matter who we step on to get there? Does it matter who we hurt to get there? Paul says, let's run it with temperance. Let's run it with self-control. Not wildly running down the the lane, no matter who you might cut off or, or injure, but run it so that all can obtain the prize. Knowledge tells us where we are going. We build knowledge on virtue because virtue cleans us up. It allows us to be a clean vessel for God to add his knowledge. We get his knowledge to tell us where to go. Self-control tells us how to act along the way. We'll get there, but there is a right way to get there. There's a right way to make a pie. And with the exact same ingredients, the exact same amount of time in the oven, the exact same crust, the exact same maker, you get this when you don't do it the right way. Knowledge tells us where we are going. Self-control tells us how to act along the way. Perseverance. To your temperance or to your self-control, add perseverance. Other, ver- other versions use the word patience. This is the Greek word hupomene, hupomene, and it means steadfastness, constancy, and a patient enduring. So this isn't just, this isn't just being patient. This is where some of those versions that use the word patient might not quite provide the full meaning. But this is steadfastness, consistency or constancy, and a patient enduring. Steadfast. Knowing that this isn't going to be easy. There comes a point as we go through this process where we realize this isn't going to be as easy as I thought. But you already have the faith that you're building on. You already have the virtue. You already have the knowledge. You have the self-control. Now comes the realization that I need to stick with this. Because this isn't going to be a bed of roses necessarily. But I need to stick with this. Because my faith is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. I am clean. I have the knowledge. I have access to the knowledge. I have have self-control. 
Now I need some steadfastness. I need to accept whatever's coming along the way and stick to it. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into, the, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We see a lot of these concepts of what Peter's talking about all built in here. But it's so that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine. We have a steadfastness that nothing is going to shake us. The wind may blow. We may get news that isn't good. We may lose some friends along the way. Some friends may drop out of the race. Our faith has set the goal, and we do not deviate from the goal. We are steadfast. We are true to our goal, to the goal that God has set before us. That is patience, knowing it's not going to be easy, but we will stay the course. Romans chapter 2. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2 and see how Paul describes it here for us. Again, cutting into the context a little bit in verse 5 is where we'll pick it up. Romans chapter 2 and in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, uh, wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Patient continuance. The, the turtle in the race between the hare and the turtle. He didn't get deviated. There wasn't a carrot thrown to the side and all of a sudden his attention deviated from the race and he sat down to have lunch or something deviated the hare along the way where he thought he could have a nap. He got tired. The sun was beating down. I got time for this. The tortoise was patient continuance. He knew where he was going. It might take him a while to get there, but he was going to keep up and stay on course. Patient continuance. Trials may come. Health issues may come. Friends and family may desert us. We tell God to bring it on and give us strength. Knowing that it isn't going to be easy, but with God as our guide, we will get there. I remember sometime after we were married, realizing that this was going to be a whole lot harder than I had anticipated it to be. 
we were young and in love and everything was peaches and cream and everything was good until we tried to bring two personalities together. And then there's the realization, this is going to take some work. I had seen many friends simply give up when things got a little tough. But our commitment to God meant that we had no other choice but to work through these things and work through the difficulties that come in a relationship. And what a joy it was some years ago when we realized we had passed the point of being knocked off course and knew that we could sail through the roughest of waters because we had passed that point where it simply wasn't going to throw us off course. Nothing could come between us. There comes a point in the Christian life where your faith is so strong, it will carry you through. Knowledge tells you where you are going. Self-control tells you how to act along the way. And then patience sets your compass and keeps it on course. To your patience or to your perseverance, add godliness. Add godliness. Add the reverence, respect, piety, honesty that comes with godliness. This Greek word eusebia from Strong's 2150. Let others see Jesus in you is what we sing. Matthew chapter 5. We then add godliness. Why? Because we're far enough along in the process that it's now starting to become about others. We have, we have developed ourselves enough through the power, God's power, His Holy Spirit, His changing of our lives, building upon this faith by cleaning us up, by providing us with His knowledge of Himself, of His plan through pages of Scripture, helped us to rein ourselves in a little bit and know how to act, given us the steadfastness that we will not be thrown off course. These are all internal building. We now start to change our mindset to become about others. And this is where we pick up this term adding godliness because we're not ready for godliness right out of the, right out of the shoot. We're not ready for this to be looked upon to have others see God in us right out of the shoot. We're, we haven't built that up. But as we go along in the process far enough, we become now about letting others see Jesus in us as we sing about Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, not to see how good you are, not to look up and go, wow, what a great individual Murray is. That others may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. So that others may see what makes Jan special? What makes Ray special? What makes Marilyn steadfast? Why is, why is all of the stuff breaking, breaking down around these individuals perhaps, and yet they're happy, they're faithful, they're steadfast? I want what's, some, something must be different. And then they allows God to be glorified when we share that. To your patience, your perseverance, add godliness. John chapter 15, let's go there. John chapter 15.
Verse 5 of John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We're proceeding through this feast of weeks to go from putting out the old leaven to being completely unleavened to putting on the character and mind of Christ so that we are ready to become first fruits. Why? It's that God is glorified. He gets the glory in this process. And so we will be his disciples. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. When we show character growth, when others see that, it reflects on God, that God has done this for you. God has taken you and changed you and changed you from the old man or the old woman and you become fruitful for him. To your perseverance, add godliness. Let others see God working in you. Knowledge tells you where you are going. Self-control tells you how to act along the way. Patience helps you set your compass and stay the course. Godliness, how others perceive you along the way. Godliness helps others perceive you along the way. How do others look at you on your course? Godly people are not stepping on others to get to the finish line first. Godly people are stopping and helping others cross the finish line with them. Is God glorified by our actions? In June 2008, Statistics Canada did a survey on the frequency, on, on the religious, religious actions of Canadians. And as part of the survey, it was the frequency of Canadians attending weekly services. And from 1985 to 2005, 20 years, Canadians, 39% of Canadians in 1985 actually went to church on a weekly basis. Four out of every ten went to church every week. Not just Christmas and Easter, not just to a wedding or a funeral, but every week. Four out of every ten Canadians actually went to church. Twenty years later, it was cut in half to two. Twenty-two percent of people went to church on a weekly basis. On the flip side, people who had no religious affiliation at all, there was only one out of ten. One out of every ten had no religious affiliation. In 20 years, that more than doubled to 22%. There are enough obstacles people have to overcome in coming to God. And then they arrive in churches and see people treating one another badly, living lives during the week of hypocrisy, away from the church, treating other groups as second-class Christians. Who in their right mind would come to church to be part of that? God, people who claim to be Christian forget to be godly. We don't need to be another obstacle in someone's way in their journey to God. There are enough obstacles. The prince of the power of the air is doing enough on his own that he doesn't need our help putting obstacles in people's way. When we add godliness to our character, 
God is glorified. People see that there is a God. He does good. He's not the onerous ogre of a God that is portrayed in Scripture. Never become anyone's millstone to Christ. We do that by ensuring we add godliness to our mix. To godliness, add brotherly kindness. Learning to love others. This again is part of this process of turning from the inward to the outward. We know the word for brotherly kindness is Philadelphia. And it, of course, means brotherly love. Hebrews chapter 13. Learning to love others. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1, on the heels of Paul's discussion of faith, which we see through chapter 11 and into chapter 12. Paul writes in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. As if chained with them. Don't just remember them, don't just... Send a card to make yourself feel better. Remember them as if you were there. Remember those who are suffering. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Paul here reminds us on the heels of faith, on this large discussion of faith, is his reminder to look outward. As we grow in character, it becomes about the outward. We're not, at this point, we're not even worried about ourselves because the character has been built. Our focus is, is set. The compass has been set. We are not being thrown off course. And now it, become, it can become about others. Proverbs chapter 18 tells us, in light of this type of love that we call brotherly love, this Philadelphia, Proverbs chapter 18. Verse 24. The last verse of Proverbs 18 tells us a man who has friends must show himself friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We think of David and Jonathan. We think of Christ and the disciples. We are part of a community. We've been hearing that for several months. We are part of a community. Brotherly love, the use of the word friend, when Christ called his disciples friends, That was impactful. That makes you part of a family. Why is this near the end of the list? Because it takes some maturity to know that we can't go it alone. We we just can't do this alone. It's too hard. God put friends, he put family in our lives so that we don't go it alone. The journey, while initially about me and my walk with God, while I develop virtue, while I become clean, while I develop knowledge, develop self-control, develop perseverance, must begin to develop being about others. It must become about others. Let's go to John 21. And here, as we go to John 21, we make the connection between brotherly love, Philadelphia, and the eighth and the seventh step to your brotherly kindness at agape. We make that connection here 
this bridge scripture in John chapter 21. And we've covered this several times from several different angles, but let's look at it again. Because Philadelphia, brotherly love isn't agape love. But Peter says we need Philadelphia first. We need brotherly love first, and once we have that, to that we add agape. Why? Several decades before, along the lines of Deacon Jan's sermon months ago about Peter's maturity, we see here Peter developing this understanding of Philadelphia and agape. Verse 15, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Do you, don't forget, he's saying, do you agape me? And Peter's saying, yes, Lord, I Philadelphia you. I love you like a brother. I have brotherly love for you. He said again, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I philia you. You know that I Philadelphia you. So he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you Philadelphia me? And there was that connection that we've talked about before. Peter said, you know all things. You know that I Philadelphia you. You know that I have that love for you. Peter knew there was something here about this two different kinds of loving, but it almost seems like he couldn't put his finger on it. Christ was trying to say, do you agape me? And all Peter could come up with was right now, I, I, I don't... whether I don't know what this is, maybe this is a type of godly love that simply hasn't been, I don't know enough, I'm not mature enough, I I have no idea what you're saying. So his response was Philadelphia. My opinion, I don't think he was being contentious. He simply, my opinion, he didn't know what agape was. He wasn't far enough along in the process. There's no scripture to prove that. That's just my my feeling. But when we go back to 2 Peter, to that list... Decades later, as he's this mature pillar in the church, he knew what the difference was. He knew there's Philadelphia, and to Philadelphia, the end of the list, you add agape. To brotherly love, to brotherly kindness, add love. And as we've heard, expounded several times over the last dozen and a half months about agape and what that really is. Loving like God loves, having the character, ultimately the character of God, this divine nature of who God is, pictured by agape. And the, the recipe is complete in that order. To your faith, add virtue. To your knowledge, to your virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, self control. To self control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, agape. It starts with belief. Then once we believe, we become pure. When we are clean and ready, he adds knowledge. He adds his wisdom, his law, all that we learn about him. Once we have that, we add self-control, temperance, being able to control ourselves. Because there's still the human factor there. To that we add patience or perseverance. 
that the compass is set and we will not deviate. We will not lose sight of our goal. We then start to make the turn by adding godliness. We become an example of God for others to look to. Not that they can look to us, but that they can see God reflected in us. And then we learn to put on brotherly love. And then ultimately, we add agape, and we come to the character and the nature of God. Do you know what happens when you're baking a lemon meringue pie and you whip the eggs first and you put it in first before you do anything else? And then when you do that, you add water to the meringue mixture and then to the meringue mixture you add lemon juice and then some lemon zest and then you bring all of that to a boil together and then you cook that until it's nice and thick same directions, just a little bit out of order. And then once you've done all of this, you add some sugar, you whip it up until it becomes stiff. Then, at the end, you throw some eggs in. You wait until the end to do that. You whisk it all together, you stir in some butter, then you get this nice big mixture all together, and you cook it on the proper heat for 10 minutes. Get this. It's okay. I wouldn't serve it to you if you're at my house. But I can, it's okay. It tastes like lemon pie. I can stomach it if I have a, if I have a hankering for something sweet. It's, it's all rubbery. and Or... If you follow the directions, you get this. Why aim for this? Why aim for that? When you can eat this. Second Peter, we'll go back there again. We see here Peter's practicality and his leadership. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, which, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. For this reason, because we want divine nature, with all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours, and not just a little bit, but if they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, 
and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, family, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if we do these things, we will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to us abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our life, the time we will now undergo from the time we were called and baptized to the time through the sanctification process, made completely holy, is represented for us, the first fruits, by the Feast of Weeks. Not by the days of the love of bread, and then we wait 50 days and we come up to Pentecost. By the Feast of Weeks process, that is our sanctification period. That's the period that is represented by our sanctification. From the redeeming selection process of Passover, the purification process of unleavened bread, followed by the character-building process of the Feast of Weeks, all preparing us for the ultimate promise of the Father, our harvest as first fruits. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.